Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, cross-border solutions weekly podcast about what else? Transfer pricing. In this post-BEPS world, compliance is tricky business, to say the least. The OECD has its recommendations. Countries keep changing their regulations. It's hard to keep track of it all. Well, today we're talking about something that can help defend your business transactions to auditors around the world, intercompany agreements. These legal contracts are part of the required local transfer pricing documentation. You have to admit that alone is a pretty compelling reason to prepare them. And they explain the approved terms of doing business within your group. But don't take my word for it. Hear about these brilliant, lawful, and some might say necessary agreements from experts who create them. We just happen to have two with us today, Paul Sutton and Lisa Blad-Sims of the UK-based LCN Legal, a company that specializes in intercompany transfer pricing agreements. Mimi Song, Cross-Border Solutions chief economist is also here. She'll be spearheading the conversation with Paul and Lisa, and of course, adding her own personal charm. Then later, Paul is taking the hot seat in my favorite part of the show, What We Want to Know, a rapid-fire round of questions about the wisdom he's gained throughout his career. But before all that, let's look at transfer pricing in the news. It's not like we expect you to feel sorry for worldwide tax authorities, but you have to admit conducting transfer pricing audits takes up a lot of their time, a lot of their personnel, and a lot of their money. That's why Ecuador's tax administration is done messing around. In fact, risk assessment specialists in Ecuador's Internal Revenue Services, that's the SRI, have set up a sophisticated system to identify high-risk transfer pricing cases, a great way to use their limited resources strategically. In an August 1st report, the Inter-American Center of Tax Administrations explained the impressive process and suggested that other countries not only marvel at it, but also replicate it. Like many countries, Ecuador's transfer pricing regime is based on the arm's length principle. And we all know what a seamless process proving that is not. The SRI's risk assessment approach uses IBM's SPSS modeler, which identifies patterns in large data sets and then detects anything that deviates from the norm. The SRI uses this data and risk indicators like profitability, materiality, and information accuracy based on data from 2012 to 2017 corporate tax returns and gives each case a risk probability score between zero and a thousand. Using this model, the authorities have recognized 1.74% of cases as high risk, 1.36 as medium, and the rest is low. So I guess we know which cases the SRI will be paying close attention to. In case you've ever wondered if the OECD's inclusive framework ever comes out with good news about any tax jurisdictions, the answer is yes. Case in point, the 131-country OECD-led group just approved an assessment by the OECD's Forum on Harmful Tax Practices. What can we say? The OECD is big on groups. The assessment examined 15 low or no tax countries to see if they have harmful tax regimes. Surprisingly, 12 out of the 15 did well. In fact, the BVI, Bermuda, the Caymans, Anguilla, and other low or no tax islands 
according to the report, do not have harmful tax regimes. Other countries like the United Arab Emirates weren't so lucky. The UAE didn't meet the framework standards, but since it's committing to manning up, it just published guidelines on country-to-country reports, for example. The forum is letting the country off easy with a in-process-of-being-amended assessment as opposed to being, quote, harmful. Meanwhile, Jordan's tax regime is deemed downright harmful, and Greece and Kazakhstan both have laws, quote, in the process of being amended, unquote, still have some work to do. Hey, we didn't say the OECD's inclusive framework always had good news. Just in case you need a sign that Norway's taking corporate tax avoidance seriously, here it is. Like 89 others, the country deposited its instrument of ratification and joined the multilateral convention to implement tax treaty-related measures to prevent BEPS. The treaty goes into effect on November 1st, 2019 for Norway and will supersede a long line of treaties with Are You Ready?, Georgia, India, Ireland, Japan, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Netherlands, Poland, Russia, Serbia, Slovenia, and the UK. And while that may sound like a lot, the number only promises to increase as more partner countries join the MLI, which, of course, they will. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. No one knows intercompany agreements better than Paul Sutton and Lisa Blad Sims. And we are so excited to have both of them with us today. Paul is the co-founder of LCN Legal, where both Lisa and Paul design intercompany agreements for multinational corporations in efforts to comply with transfer pricing regulations. A corporate lawyer for more than 25 years, Paul has advised international clients, including airlines and media groups, and he's worked with tax professionals to create Implement and maintain intercompany agreements. He's been quoted in the Financial Times, the Scotsman newspaper, and Financial Director magazine, and with a specialty in transfer pricing compliance. He's also the author of Intercompany Agreements for Transfer Pricing Compliance, which debuted this year. Of course, Lisa Blad Sims is also here, a lawyer. Lisa specializes in intercompany agreements for transfer pricing compliance, corporate and investment structures at LCN Legal. 
legal. And she has also advised high-profile blue-chip clients at prestigious international law firms, including Linklaters and Clyde in Company LLP, not to mention heading the legal team at A.J. Walter. And while we could go on and on listing impressive credentials for this pair, let's just sum it up and say they both have a lot of legal experience and know a thing or two about intercompany agreements and transfer pricing compliance. Welcome, Paul and Lisa. Thank you so much for being here. And just one quick announcement before we dive in here. You can earn CPE credits just from listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting two CPE code words in this podcast, and you'll have to email both of them. That's two code words to the Fiona show at crossbordersolutions.io, that email address. Once we receive the two correct code words, we'll send out your CPE certificate. Pretty simple, right? Now let's get started. Mimi, over to you. Well, let's start off by getting to know you guys a little bit better. I mean, we're really excited to have have you both join us today. So Lisa and, and Paul, let's start with, uh, let's start with Paul, for example. How long have you been working together? So with, with Lisa, we've been working about three and a half years together, okay. uh, which is when she joined LCN Legal. Um, and I've been a corporate lawyer for about 25 years now. And, and can I actually ask you both how you guys met? And, and Lisa, did you just come across LCN Legal and, and say, oh, I want to join that firm? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Yes, I do. Yes, yes so I was working um, in house. I was head of legal for a large M&E, actually. And um, Paul and I had met um, elsewhere, and I knew he was starting uh, this, this project with LCN, and I just looked, it looked so exciting and such a, um, a sort of a specialist practice that I wanted to be part of it. Great. Okay. And, and both of you are corporate lawyers. I'm curious, how did you get into transfer pricing compliance and intercompany agreements? So I first came across transfer pricing in the early 2000s, which is when I joined KPMG's law firm in, in the UK. Before that, I was just a, uh, a more typical corporate lawyer doing M&A, that, that, that kind of work. Um, and I, I started working with the international tax team and the transfer pricing teams there at KPMG. And what I realized was from my perspective, tax was this whole unknown area of full of fear and uh, things that threatened to derail a transaction at the last moment. So in other words, I, I was completely unfamiliar with thought processes involved. And what I found out was that, that that level of ignorance and fear was uh, equal and opposite. In other words, they were as unfamiliar with the, the legal thought processes um, as I was with tax. So, so really, that, that was the whole start of the journey to try and bridge the gap between those two worlds of law and tax. And things have evolved since since that that revelation, Paul, is that right? I mean, you know, the landscape has changed in terms of the relevance of the legal aspect of the intercompany agreements to the tax aspect. Would you agree with that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, maybe I can let uh, Lisa talk about this, but there's, there's been a massive change in, in the way that uh, the transfer pricing advisors and the groups that we deal with approach into company agreements over, over the last three years in particular. I, I think that's right. I think actually it's the sort of ever-developing nature of the work we do that makes it so interesting. And so just sort of touching on what you were uh, referring to then, Paul, so, uh, for example, we held a private discussion with industry experts attending just a few years ago um, on the subject of ICAs in the context of transfer pricing. And the overarching position agreed between all of these professionals was that basically intercompany agreements are nice to have, and ideal for good order as regards TP compliance, but they weren't necessarily essential. 
and obviously now, for various reasons, including with label recognition of tax authorities, that a review of QP compliance actually begins with an examination of ICAs and also the requirement for material agreements to be referenced in local and master file. This means that ICAs now need to be completed not just by large multinationals, but also mid-tier and smaller groups. And so there's sort of the slowdown effect of VETS is identified. And for us, that just means that this increases the range of clients that we need to develop our offerings for. So we need to account for smaller budgets, varying levels of in-house resources and knowledge. And this ever-changing landscape is actually what keeps us on our toes and so interested in this area. Wow, that's great, Lisa. I, 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 I agree. I think things have things have definitely evolved, right? And so, Lisa, how do you find that the experience you have had working in-house, uh, you know, in a law firm or, or, you know, in industry has helped your develop this business model that you guys are creating at, at LCN? That's a really good question. Um, I think that, obviously, I mentioned previously, I was group head of legal for a large m prior to coming to LCN. And that role gave me a really good understanding of the standard in-house constraints that are faced by GCs. So of tight budget, uh, limited support perhaps from key internal stakeholders, um, often a, a real lack of resource generally, and at a really basic level, often just a huge volume of matters on the table at any one time. Um, and I think that experience has enabled me to sort of put myself in the position of the client and just know which questions to ask at the very beginning so we can scope well what sort of degree of support is required for the client. Um, how much they, how much they need from us in terms of, uh, of legal guidance, and basically just to ensure that everyone starts off on the same page with a really good understanding of what we need to um, agree and what needs to be managed to get a project fully over the line as quickly as possible. I, I love that. I think it's so it's so valuable to have that personal experience, right, Lisa? That you know yeah. what's happening on that other side of the fence, and so you're not just coming from a different angle saying, well, why can't you get that done, right, <laughs> as a consultant? I know how hard it is to get that signature. <laughs> exactly. It's not that easy. All right. Yeah. Well, let's get into the heart of this discussion. I'd like to know, and our audience would like to know, a little bit more about LCN Legal. What services, expertise does the company offer? Tell us a little bit about the company. Yes, so at our heart, we focus on intercompany agreements and the related corporate structuring. So we don't advise on tax or comparables or transfer pricing as, as, as such. It's purely the, the legal agreements. And we work in a number of different ways. One way is, is just like any traditional law firm. We, we help on a consulting basis to design intercompany agreements. Um, and usually we start off by looking at the draft master files and local files, understanding the transactions and creating template agreements for each transaction type. So that, that's a typical approach. Um, mm. But how, how we've developed the business in, in different directions um, is, is really recognizing the fact that there is this, this huge knowledge gap or understanding gap between the tax world and the legal world. And we try to bridge that through different ways. One way is, is to create training services. So we've recently launched an online training course specifically on intercompany agreements, yeah. and that's to help give uh, transfer pricing practitioners, but also legal counsel, uh, the understanding that they need to be able to assess their own groups um, and to uh, to create appropriate agreements themselves. Um, alongside that, we've um, we've created a toolkit of template intercompany agreements, and and that's that's really to help avoid. Um, the, the time that it costs to, or the time it takes to create agreements from scratch and, and, and avoid 
the kind of mistakes that we see happening over and over again. And then most recently, um, we, we've taken that a step forward by creating an online questionnaire system, what we call a, a fast track system, um, to help TP advisors and, and clients create uh, their own agreements um, by answering a series of simple questions. Wow, that's great. And and so let's start by you know explaining what exactly is an intercompany agreement and, and what do these agreements typically cover? So an intercompany agreement uh, in its most basic form is an agreement documenting a transaction, so either a sale or a transfer of goods or services, which is entered into between two or more associated entities, each of which are part of the same group of companies. Um, and looking at examples of intercompany agreements, we often come across IP license agreements, uh, limited risk distribution agreements, loan arrangements, back office service agreements, a, a really broad range of covers. Fiona, Lisa mentioned a few arrangements that intercompany agreements might cover, but can you name a few more? Intercompany agreements can cover many aspects of transfer pricing. You might draw up an agreement for R&D services, marketing services, cost sharing, cash pooling, IT services and support, among others. And are all of those different types of arrangements covered or you know, supported by LCN's agreement um, tool, whether or not whether that's your fast track or your fast track service or um, clearly your your sort of uh, ad hoc agreements are covered. But is there any template for all the different types of agreements that you guys offer? Yes. So, so our, our current um, what we call our toolkit of template agreements. Um, that covers all those different um, transaction types and various others, such as cash pooling arrangements, uh, bilateral loan agreements, um, franchise-type arrangements, and, and, and so on. Um, so that's, uh, that toolkit is, is, is pretty comprehensive. In, in terms of the, the new online uh, questionnaire as part of our fast-track service, we've, we've just launched that for one transaction type at the moment which is um, for business support services or central support services type arrangements, which are charged on the cost plus arrangements. Um, but we will uh, extend that uh, very soon to cover other typical transaction types, such as uh, appointments of limited risk distributors and uh, IP licenses. And so oh, wow. Okay. And, and, you know, what type of information or how detailed do these intercompany agreements have to be? I, I, and I, there could be multiple schools of thought, but... You know, from your perspective, how much detail is required to be covered by the intercompany agreement? Yeah, if, if I can pick that one up, um, it's, it's something we're actually we actually feel very passionate about, um, which is it's really important to keep the, the agreements as short and brief as, as possible. One of the reasons for that is that if, if an agreement doesn't match the way that the group actually operates in practice, then it, it's not going to carry much weight at all, and it's mm -hmm. going to be unhelpful. So. In order for an agreement to be right, it needs to be read by multiple stakeholders, and it's hard enough getting anyone to read anything, let alone you know fifty pages <laughs> of, of, of legal verse. That's true. So <laughs> our, our approach is you've got to you've got to express the essence of the arrangement, but in a way that number one uh, is consistent with the transfer pricing policy, so the allocation of risks and, and functions, and number two um, is consistent with the other legal needs of the group. So that includes things like asset protection, IP protection, and, mm -hmm. and the legal governance of the structure as, as, as a whole. So that, that means that there's a, a really important balancing act between 
uh, keeping it as short as possible, but also having functionality that just makes sense. We talk about legal substance. It needs right. to be an arrangement which can be properly approved by the directors of all the participating entities. So, you know, in my prior experience, when I was also on the industry side, um, we kept our agreements pretty generic. And so I wanted to get your, your thoughts on this as well. We even... Um, referenced a service catalog where the transfer pricing policy and the explicit markups and the actual amounts to be charged on an intercompany basis were sort of outside of this agreement so that we could continue to maintain a legal agreement that was um, sort of this living document that, that continues to evolve given market conditions. Would you, would you say that that is a best practice approach or have things evolved since you know I've been out of that line for you know five years now um i I would say that approach can work okay um but the approach that doesn't work that i I think has been very prevalent in previous years is what we'd call a fudge or an agreement to agree you know but but very often when when you look at older agreements uh in the pricing clause it just says you know such prices as may be agreed between the parties from time to time or such prices is established one with a transfer pricing policy from time to time that kind of thing is probably going to lack legal certainty, mm-hmm. which probably means, depending on the applicable law, you don't have an agreement at all. And for some transaction types, such as limited risk distribution arrangements, where it's an, it's an essential term or essential term of the structure that the distributor has been de-risked by a legally binding contractual arrangement, um, that fudge approach just doesn't work. Um, so what what we advise is, yes, keep it as short as possible. Yes, reference third-party documents where that is helpful and makes sense. But it needs to be an agreement which, as a whole, describes the arrangement in such a way that the directors of each individual entity can properly approve and can understand what is happening. Hmm. Okay. And, and earlier, Paul, you had mentioned that even even when, you know, dealing with other attorneys or lawyers, if they don't have specialized expertise when it comes to intercompany agreements, um, you know, they may not know what's required, right? And and is this one of those things where, they, hey, they might go too generic or they might go too specific that you've seen, you know, being a, a major challenge for other attorneys without this level of experience? Yeah, I, th- I think absolutely. Well, well, one of the things that we come across time and time again is, is groups which use um, third-party agreements um, and trying to adapt that from uh, for an intergroup context, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that and that can work. But the problem is that if if you if you look at um, like a franchising type agreements, um, a typical third-party franchise agreement would be fifty, sixty, or maybe more pages. A typical distribution agreement between third parties may be the same kind of kind of length. And usually those type of agreements would contain a whole load of functionality that would be relevant in that kind of situation, for example, notifications and change control procedures and, and so on, but just don't work, uh, are not relevant in an intergroup context. Um, and similarly, those type of agreements would generally not have the kind of terminology and risk allocation um, that is referred to in uh, the relevant master files and local files or other TP policies. And so you often see this complete mismatch between what the transfer pricing of the tax teams in the corporate think they've got and what the legal teams 
actually produced for them, and it's no one's fault. It's it's just that it's it's a it's a classic between two stools situation, um, and that means uh, and that's partly why we've recently introduced the training courses because yes, you know, in all things being equal, um, groups should make use of existing resources and the existing know-how that exists within the legal teams, but they need to be educated on what ICAs should and should not do. Indeed, and I'm just going to interject here with our first CPE code word, and that word is interesting, as in transfer pricing is super interesting. Back to you, Mimi. I, I really do love the code words, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we try our best to come up with good ones. Yeah, it, it, it keeps me uh, in, interested. <laughs> so, so, Lisa and Paul, why does my company or any company want or need an intercompany agreement? And, and what are the advantages and or even disadvantages, right, of having and not having them? Okay, so I'll take that one if you like, Paul. Um, sure. And I say there's a lot of reasons. So uh, as I just noted previously, ICAs do form part of the local files that are required for TPE compliance. Um, and they are a fundamental part of a group's business model, which is required to be described in, a mas in its master file. So in order to be tax audit ready, uh, a multinational will need to have appropriate ICAs in place. But I think also, on top of that, sort of stepping back from just a transfer pricing context, there are also a really good number of non-tax drivers for putting in place ICAs. So at regulatory compliance, for example, or just trying to ring fence assets and liabilities from risk. Uh, and then also obviously good corporate governance requires that um, agreements are uh, clear as between companies and signed off by directors. So again, ICAs were a part of that process too. And basically, you know, the ICA, I, I, I guess IICAs, um, if you don't have an intercompany agreement in place, what are some of the consequences? Have you seen um, companies suffer as a result of not having an intercompany agreement? Yes, for sure. So I think probably the biggest risk of not having appropriate ICAs in place is that the transaction is recharacterized by the relevant tax authority. And then obviously following that, there's an imposition of tax adjustments potentially or fines and penalties. And this really just happens because an m and has failed to present a clear position as to the intergroup supplies being made and how those risks and supply flows are allocated between the group companies. And so obviously the, the tax authority then looks at the circumstances and facts as they see them and imply the position without a reference to the contract. So that, that's a really probably the biggest risk. And also, uh, in certain jurisdictions, corporate groups are fined simply for failing to produce the signed ICA when they're asked to do so. So if you're working within those sort of jurisdictions, you need to be cognizant of that. Wow, okay. And, and you know, this is a question that I'm a little bit curious about. LCN Legal as a company, would you, you guys are not considered or wouldn't consider you got yourselves a, a law firm, right? I mean, you guys are business with a lot of attorneys or licensed attorneys. Is that a right? Is that the right way to characterize LCN? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, first <laughs> <laughs> off, purely as a law firm, you know, we're we're regulated as a law firm, and uh, we are qualified lawyers. You know, that, that's that's at the heart of the practice. But in terms of our evolution, especially in the last couple of years, we we've, we, we still have the, the, the legal consultancy service or law firm type services at, at the heart of what we do. But we found that in order to meet the need in the market, we've had to add on different 
different services. So that includes the, the training, includes the templates, includes the, the online tools. And uh, the way that we see our ongoing evolution is that probably those other non, non-traditional tools will overtake the rest of the law firm in terms of uh, the, the, the market, in terms of the, the, the weight of what we do. And I think just to add to that, Paul, what's been really interesting with LCN and the way that we've grown is that, I think you touched upon it, we've just developed in accordance with need. So when we've, for example, with the educational side of the practice and, and the, the online course, we provided that because we felt it was a real, it was really needed. We were coming across a lot of examples where people just weren't educated in TT, didn't quite know how they should be positioning themselves and what their companies needed. And so we produced that course to bring people up to speed. And I think that's been a really... Uh, compared to my other companies I've worked with and other law firms I've worked with historically, it's been a really uh, unique part of LCN is that we've sort of just organically developed to meet the needs of the people we're working with. Lisa, Paul, as we're talking about these agreements and as you guys are are explaining um, the need for substance behind the agreements and the differences between third-party agreements versus intercompany agreements, you know, a question popped into my head about limited risk distribution arrangements, right? And how common this type of arrangement is in transfer pricing when it comes to intercompany agreements. But let's let's be real. Limited risk arrangements don't really exist in the in in this open capital market, you know, free economy, right? And so is that something that you guys specifically see in terms of intercompany agreements or contracts, like not addressing the limited risk structure appropriately? There must be a way to strip out the risk from an intercompany agreement, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, it's such, such an interesting question. Uh, but but I, I do think um, that there, there are many, many examples of limited risk type arrangements in, in, in real life. For example, you know, when, when you board a plane or when you use a postal service, you don't expect to have a, a right of recourse or, or compensation if, uh, if the mail is late in, in being delivered or if, if, the train, if the train or plane is, is cancelled. You know, that, that's an example where you don't expect to have much legal recourse at all. And, and so, so really, when, when you're talking about a limited risk distributor, it's, it's, it's akin to an outsourcing type arrangement, isn't it? You know, r- really, if, if, you, if you had a, a conversation between the principal and the distributor, and imagine what it would go like if it was, if it was played out in real time, you, you'd say something like, hey, uh, we, we've got this fantastic product, we'd like you in country X to distribute it for us, um, but don't worry. Um, we're going to make sure that you get a, a, a certain margin on your cost right, there, right. Um, and we'll weigh all the risk so that if you can't sell the stuff, we'll buy it back. If your customers don't pay, we'll compensate you for that. Um, if you're subject to product liability claims, then we'll indemnify you. Um, and, and and on that basis, you know, uh, you should be pretty happy getting a margin of six percent or whatever it is on on your cost. You know, that, that's the kind of arrangements that are kind of discussion that you'd have in the, in the early stages of that kind of negotiation. And all we're doing when we document that in the agreement is, is reflecting those different elements, you know, the, the, the inventory risk about unsold products, you know, the uh, risk of the, the credit risk in terms of customers, the product liability risks. And each of those risk areas is the subject of a separate set of terms. So really, there's there's no magic to it. There's nothing artificial to it. It's just documenting an arrangement that 
really make sense that you would agree to as a director of the distributor, but also as a director of the principal. I would say, though, Paul, on top of that, it's actually, this is one of the main areas where we see the discrepancy between what people think they've contracted and what the contract actually says. So I would say limited risk distribution agreements are the one that most frequently that comes across our table, which is not limited risk at all, but people think it is. Right. So it's um, it's something to really be aware of, uh, particularly on this, this this type of agreement, that you make sure that the contract really does reflect the substantive arrangements in place. Right. I mean, do you ever see contracts that say, oh, the company bears all risk associated with lost inventory, and then at the same time it says TP policy guarantees a profit margin of A, a percent? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Okay. So you see, you see, uh, you see there's a, this is probably the, and let me know if you don't agree, Paul, but I think this is probably the single agreement where you see most um, distortion between what the parties think is happening and what's happening in the contract. Right. And I, th- I think this goes back to your point about the whole idea of characterization of the transaction, right, Lisa? Yeah. And how Absolutely. important it is Absolutely. to have the agreement that, m- you know, matches the appropriate characterization of that intercompany yeah. transaction. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And, and that's the factor of timing. You know, the, the OECD transfer pricing guidelines are really clear. You can't backdate the allocation of contractual risk. You know, mm-hmm. just just yeah. like you can't bet on a horse race after the winner has been announced. <laughs> but so that that means if the TP policy says um, that the distributor does not bear risks X, Y, and Z, um, then it's it's a question of fact whether actually that did exist as per the legal agreements in that period, or or if it didn't. And and it's it's so common as as Lisa says that we come across these uh, these agreements and clients think they've done it right, but it's 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 almost the opposite of, of what is required. <laughs> right. Well, I think this is a good segue into into my next question, which is, you know, the fact that, Paul, you wrote an article in TP Week, um, I think it was in 2017, about the biggest mistakes in intercompany agreements, and we've been talking about it a little bit. But can you just elaborate a little bit more in terms of what are the mistakes that you see in typical intercompany agreements and um, and your recommendations, perhaps? Yeah, so, so I, th- I think, you know, probably the, the, the main mistake is, is number one, that we've covered already, the complete contradiction between what the legal agreement says and what the transfer pricing policies say. It's, it's so often that we come across that, e- even in FTSE uh, 100 and Fortune 500 companies that, that we work with, that they, they just get it so wrong. Uh, uh, the number two would, would just be to put intercompany agreements in the two difficult box and not get around to them. That That is incredibly frequent as, as, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mistake number three we've already talked about is, is using third-party agreements. I, I think people have a misunderstanding. They, they think arm's-length principle, yeah. and therefore it needs to be an arm's-length style contract, um, whereas um, it just doesn't work, and, and it actually takes longer to try and convert a, a, a 60-page um, agreement uh, into the maybe sort of 10 or 15 pages that are needed from an intercompany agreement perspective. So it's a, th- those, those are the major points in, in, in just uh, completely failing to a- address the, 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 the arrangements set out in the transfer pricing policies. The, the, the other mistake is, is not having a central policy um, for preparing intercompany agreements, mm-hmm. because what happens then is, is that you often get separate cottage industries. In other words, tax producers agreements for their own purposes, maybe the IP protection team produces their own agreements, uh, VAT and, 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 and so on. Um, 
and another of our mantras that we're incredibly passionate about is you need to approach agreements from a holistic perspective. It's not just about creating something for tax. It's about creating something that genuinely meets the needs of all the relevant stakeholders in the group. And that means having a central policy and having a central system for designing and updating agreements. Right. And and I actually, I agree. I, 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 I second that sentiment because, you know, we used to see duplicate agreements all the time. And the question would be, well, which one is active and which one overrides the other or supersedes the other. And yeah. I don't know if there's a framework for that or from a legal perspective, do you just look at the dates? If that's the case and you have multiple agreements? Yeah, well, the thing, if, if you're faced with that kind of situation and it's almost like a forensic exercise right. to work out what the actual situation is, you know, you, you're, you're probably sunk anyway, aren't you? Yeah. Because <laughs> the, whole, the whole point of this is uh, well, why are you doing this in the first place? Mm-hmm. It, it's to be tax audit ready, ready isn't it? It's, it's so that you can present, when you're asked, a consistent view as to what is the character of the, the controlled transactions, what is the allocation of, of uh, risks and, and functions, and so that you've got a clear and coherent story. And if you've got a bunch of agreements which contradict each other, then you know, you, you, you're you pretty much failed on that anyway. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer, cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and fiona can you think of any other common mistakes in intracompany agreements certainly some are so ridiculous you almost can't believe it for example agreements that are missing a signature can you imagine going through all this work and then just forgetting to sign the document but they're not binding without signatures Key terms might also be missing, which lets the tax authorities make liability assessments. Some are poorly drafted, some are too hard to understand, think short and sweet, everyone, and others are out of date or don't reflect the reality of how the group operates. So some people and some experts say that the real value of an intercompany agreement is when something goes wrong. Is that true? Is that your position? Well, and, and maybe you, Lisa and Paul, have different perspectives on that. What do you think? Um, maybe if I start on that, I, I think that's, that's, that's right in the sense that it comes back to why are you doing this in the first place um, and, and that you, you're trying to create an arrangement which withstands scrutiny. So it's only really tested when something goes wrong. In other words, you're subject to that kind of challenge, tax challenge or tax audit. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, 
really you're creating this document in, or a set of documentation in the hope that you'll never need to uh, use it, but knowing that it would withstand, withstand scrutiny if it is looked at. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's just to encourage a proactive rather than a reactive response to things. And so, um, it, obviously, the, the value of ICAs is highlighted when you don't have them. So if you're having to produce something to tax authorities and you, you can't, then obviously the you can look back on that. And in fact, for quite a lot of the, the clients you've had, they've come to us, have come to us off the back of a bad audit experience, knowing they now have to get all of their ducks in a row for the next time. And so um, I think that, yes, certainly sometimes the catalyst for people reviewing their ICA position and their TP policy is that they had a bad experience and they now know they don't want to have it again. But we would certainly encourage our clients to be proactive and avoid that situation by ensuring that their transfer pricing documentation is all in order before an audit. So... I've actually I've, I've I've spoken with a client um, that I can think of. I've spoken with a client that had intercompany agreements, but it turns out that the company wasn't following the intercompany agreement. And in that situation, any advice from you guys? <laughs> I mean, that that's definitely the recharacterization I was referring to earlier. Yeah. So if they have intercompany agreements in place but they're in no way related to the substantive reality of what's happening, they're almost useless. So the advice really from, from me would be that you have to have a constant monitoring situation where you make sure that your documentation is accurately reflective of reality at all times. Yeah. And if just from a, a best practice perspective, for multinationals, what kind of advice can you provide in terms of, you know, maintaining intercompany agreements, to your point, right, Lisa, and to have that framework in yeah. place for monitoring? Yeah. Yeah, so once the ICAs are signed and they're, they're filed, it's really important to introduce an ongoing monitoring process where you allocate responsibility to continued ICA compliance to particular individuals, and so it's incumbent upon them to periodically revisit the allocated ICAs and ensure they're accurately reflecting the substantive transaction that they're intended to document. So that's accountability is put in place um, and it's also important for groups to reconsider their ICAs following any sort of material alteration to their structure or to the nature of their business so um, for example we've got a client at the moment that we're presently working with who is revisiting and refining uh, its TP policy following a substantive acquisition um, just to make a clear distinction between those group companies that provide strategic management and those that don't management services and those that don't um, and it's now reviewing and amending its ICAs in order to ensure the new policy is fully reflected in them. So I think that the main key is just to ensure that you don't sort of sign your ICAs, put them away and then think the job is done. You just need to put a process in place where that monitoring is implemented. And, and speaking of signing, have you ever seen agreements that are signed by the same person and does that create challenges? Like the same person representing different officer statuses in different legal entities, because I mean we're still related parties, right? So there are a couple, yeah. you know, employees that have dual hat status. Yeah, ideally you would want to not have that, mm -hmm. um, just because of the situation you're highlighting now. It just looks odd um, and and suspicious. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it, it's not actually it's not actually wrong, provided this, the person actually is able to sign for those related entities. So. Okay. Um, I, get, I guess there's best practice and then there's the sort of the, the fully legal situation, which is that provided that person has the authority to sign for both entities, then it's completely fine. But we would always advise 
have different signatories if possible. And and besides the master fund, I, you know, Lisa, earlier you were saying intercompany agreements, you should put them into your master file or that's one of the requirements. Um, are there any other situations where you need to uh, alert the tax authorities about an intercompany agreement or is there any other situation besides being audited where an intercompany agreement would be examined by a tax authority? So I guess yeah, the first point, you're completely right. You need to provide them as part of the local fire requirements. And so in that situation, you certainly have to um, present them to the tax authorities. Um, also, if you're aware that historic tax filings are possibly incorrect, as the relevant ICAs were inappropriate or not drafted correctly, mm-hmm. it would also be sensible to consider voluntary disclosure in that situation, um, just to sort of preempt a problem when in audit, potentially. Um, outside of that, I don't know if any other things I can think of where it's mandatory to produce an ICA, Paul. Anything you would add there? Or? Well, in, 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 in separate fields, for, for example, currency control or exchange control, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but for, for some countries um, like, like China, if you want to remit um, payments from China, from a Chinese subsidiary, say, to the uh, overseas parents, um, then... In, in order for funds to move at all, you need to produce a, an, an intercompany agreement as part of the overall documentation. So, so there, there are, are examples where um, that, that kind of issue can, or that, that kind of requirement can be more pressing in, in some ways than the transfer pricing reasons. That's, a, that's actually a really great point. I, I have a lot of situations where um, our customers have, well, multinationals have challenges taking money out of China, right, Paul? So, mm-hmm. so, so I think to your point, are you saying that at least the intercompany agreement is absolutely necessary to the extent that you want to be able to structure a payment that would be outbound from China and it, without it, there's there's really no chance, right? Um, absolutely, it's 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 point point uh, mandatory. That that's that's it. And and as as you know, you know, so, so that's one aspect. Another aspect which often goes alongside transfer pricing is, is, is customs valuation type issues. Yeah, I was actually um, going to ask and, you and about again, that. Uh-huh. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Paul. <laughs> yeah. And, and so as, as, as you know, an, an, a number of payments may be, may be relevant. So um, customs valuation may, may relate to the, the sale and purchase of goods or the importation of goods. Um, but other intergroup payments such as uh, management services or license fees may be taken into account in uh, assessing that customer's valuation, and it really just highlights the fact that what we're trying to create here is is an overall ecosystem that, as far as possible, works from the perspectives of all the different stakeholders in the group, which is, is obviously the council of perfection. You'll, you'll never achieve 100% in everything, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's important to have that uh, aim in mind when you're trying to design an appropriate system. Indeed, and it's time actually for our second CPE code word. This time the word is baseball. Mimi, back to you. Thanks, Matt. So I'm just wondering, can tax authorities actually challenge your intercompany agreements? I know we've talked about this whole idea of recharacterization um, of the intercompany transactions based on the facts and circumstances, but can they challenge the validity of, of the intercompany agreement altogether and just throw them out? Uh, yeah, well, the short answer is, is yes, absolutely, and, mm-hmm. and and that's something that we touched on already, I, I, I guess, which is if if the agreements don't match what is physically happening with the, within the group or the way that decisions are made or the, the risks that the different entities within the group are capable of bearing, 
then um, tax authorities are, are likely just to disregard those agreements um, completely, meaning that uh, the group is on the back foot again and, and basically they're at the mercy of the tax authority in characterizing the transactions in, in whatever way is most advantageous to that tax authority. That's fairly helpful, Paul. And, and last but not least, I, in transfer pricing, we always have this discussion about legal versus economic substance, right? And so I'm just curious from, from your perspective, or Lisa, from your perspective, um, what do you think is more important? I think they're equally important, actually. I think it really is the, the point that Paul made earlier about trying to balance the position between the sort of two-stool two situation and making sure that both sides are adequately documented in club at all. I, seriously, I, I really appreciate your time. This has been extremely fascinating for me. You know, being an economist and not an attorney, that was a little bit of a loaded question, wasn't it, Lisa? So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to offend you. I no, no, wor- okay. no worries at all. Absolutely not. Uh, anyways, Matt, back to you. Hi, I'm Matthew Demello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Thank you so much. And once again, it's time for my favorite part of the show, what we want to know. And here's how it works. We put someone in the hot seat. And today, Paul, that's you. And we ask them a rapid fire (laughs) round of questions. Paul, are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Excellent. Here we go. You work with a lot of clients directly. What is your advice on building relationships for the long term? Uh, My advice is just be real. Don't try to I think that's the worst thing, you know. People don't expect you to know every answer to every every question, um, but they do appreciate an honest opinion. Indeed. And people define success in different ways. What's your definition? Uh, my definition would be feeling good about what I'm doing. Um, everyone wants to make a contribution. Everyone wants to feel that uh, they're doing something good in the world. Uh, transfer pricing may be a strange area for many people, but um, that there's plenty of opportunity to contribute uh, know-how and information. For sure. And think of your biggest mentor. Who is he or she, and what have you learned from them? Um, well, I have to say um, I, I've had lots of mentors over the years. Um, one re- more recent mentor over the last five years is a guy called Ian Barron. He has been so incredibly helpful for us uh, as, as a business and as individuals, he, he is a, a, a former senior uh, tax professional from, from uh, previously at American Express. Well, what, what I've learned from him is just his incredible generosity. He, he now acts as a mentor, free of charge. He's always giving, always constructive, and I think that's incredibly inspirational. Of course. 
And I know we've covered a lot of mistakes in intercompany agreements today, but what mistakes in general do you see multinational companies making over and over again? Um, it's really just screwing it up completely, not thinking about it. Um, it's, it's shocking how many large and well-resourced groups just get it completely wrong. So that's why we're on, in a, on a mission to spread information by training and tools and, 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 and so on to help people get it right. For sure. And what is the professional core value closest to your heart? Um, it would have to be love and generosity. Indeed. Indeed. As, as many uh, many of my uh, favorite Britons have mentioned before, uh, all you need is love, in fact. Uh, thank you. Uh, at least four of my, specifically four specific ones. But anyway. <laughs> and that's just about all the time we have today. But what a great show. Paul and Lisa, thanks so much for being with us today. Mimi, thanks for coming in so early. That's right. In honor of our guests, we're operating on UK time and have the grogginess to show for it. If you're interested in learning more, about LCN Legal and how it can help you with transfer pricing compliance, visit the company's website, lcnlegal.com. And if you want to learn more about transfer pricing every week, The Fiona Show is the place to be. So subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. As always, you're welcome to post questions about this episode or any episode on our Facebook page, or at the very least, like us, we'll answer you right here. That's all for today. This podcast was edited, engineered, recorded, and hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer and writes our scripts. Until next time, this is Matthew DeMello reminding you to get your intercompany agreements in order, because as we've learned here this morning, you never know when they could save the day. 